my dad's like, Barbara, get on the plane. I'm going to take care of Steven. And I get on the floor and I'm just like beside myself because I can't imagine being without him and him being here without me. And I get on the floor and I'm like, Steven, you have to come with me now. I cannot leave you. And he all of a sudden composes himself, stands up, grabs my hand, and we start walking towards the towards the plane. And I take my hand and I wave back at my dad. I don't like turn around because I think I'm just going to fall apart. Mm. And we board the plane. And Stephen and I sit down, we take our seats and he falls asleep like a dead man. He's like, I I think his episode, he was like, I'm in good hands now. And like, he just fell asleep on me. And I became like so emboldened in and that whole flight home, and it was a red eye, and I stayed up all night, and I decided, I'm going to take care of you. I'll never let you down. I'll never see you like this again. I will always, I, and I just, for that entire flight home, I didn't sleep one wink, but I plotted my life, mm-hmm. and I decided I will always take care of this person. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Barbara Majewski. Welcome, Barbara. Hi, thank you. Yeah, so Barbara, you have a complex story that is unfolding even now because you are a stage three cancer survivor Mm -hmm. and are going through a divorce Mm -hmm. and are also the main caregiver for your brother. How I want to make sure that I explain what your brother's condition is correctly. And I don't want to just simplify it by saying special needs, which is what I was about to say. How do you describe where your brother is developmentally? So I'm my brother has a condition, it's called Fragile X. And just to clarify, I'm not his main uh, caregiver. I'm actually his um, legal guardian, but he lives with my parents still. They're very protective over him. I just happen to have a bigger mouth and more (laughs) gumption than the average bear. So I'm able to navigate the world for him and get him the resources that he wants. But yes, Um, so my brother has a condition it's called Fragile X, which is a genetically inherited form of neurological impairment. Um, the best way to describe it is it's it's just like Down syndrome. It's um, genetic, it's inherited, and it affects your development. Um, he basically has the, I don't know, the maybe the functionality of maybe a second grader. He has very um, poor fine motor skills. Um, but he's, you know, loving and warm. He's unemployable, um, but he's can be somewhat independent in his own way. Um, but he's definitely, um, ultra dependent on the world around him to make sure his basic needs are met. Mm -hmm. And does your, does the rest of your family live in the same state as you? Yeah. So, um, interesting, um, little tidbit about me and my family is that I'm actually a twin. I have a twin brother. His name's Ben, um, who lives in, is an attorney in Charlotte. And then I have younger twin brothers, Michael and Steven, and Steven's the one with special needs. And they both live, um, Steven lives maybe seven miles away from me. And Michael lives maybe 15, 15 miles away, uh, with his wife and two young children, um, so not only does fat fragile X run in my family, so do multiple births. My mother is a triplet. So, um, oh, wow. medics are a funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so do you get to see your mom and dad too? Of course. Yeah. I come from a very close family. There's not, um, we're low drama, <laughs> we're not mm-hmm. you know, now that I've been out in the world, I'm 47 years old. I'm like, yeah, I think we're actually, uh, as you know, as good as it gets, a lot of love, a lot of laughs, a lot of quirks, um, that, uh, it's a good family. And we spoke in an earlier conversation where my impression was of your family that it wasn't always, I'm trying to, I want to phrase this the right way. It wasn't stable the way it is now. Would you say that's accurate? 
you know, what we always had was we always had great love. And, you know, like we are, we very much love each other. My family's very warm and loving. Um, just growing up, financial stability kind of eluded us um, or eluded my parents. And I think it really, they, you know, um, there's so many reasons for financial instability, but I think just the mix of having a child with special needs during an era where people really just, it was very much a shameful thing or it wasn't really discussed or people felt sorry for you. Oh, did you hear the Schwartzes? And I think it was a really difficult time um, to have a child with special needs. Um, There weren't many resources. uh, Conversations were hushed. And I think that there was um, a sense of, I, you know, I, I don't understand what my parents were trying to do, but maybe it was like, you know, chase the get rich quick scheme or whatever it was. And, you know, they just had financial problems. And in middle school, kind of, or maybe um, even when I was in elementary school, um, things just kind of tanked. And we ended up in kind of a precarious situation as I was entering um, seventh grade. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm the only girl in this dynamic. So I have a twin brother, Mm -hmm. younger twin brothers. And I just always felt like the younger set of siblings were kind of like my dolls. Like I was, <laughs> I was three years older. So I just assumed I was, I don't know, I would like dress them up and play patty cake. And <laughs> there is an incident that I think is important as you understand my love and commitment to Steven. And when I was six years old and the twins were the younger twins were three, I was giving them a bath and, you know, you'd only fill up the water so much. So it wasn't like this crazy, you know, you're like, what kind of six year old gives baths to (laughs) And this is the seventies. So So I'm playing patty cake with Michael, who was better at patty cake. This, you can, Uh I remember that. I was like, well, Steven's not that good at patty cake. I'm going to play with Michael. And I turned around to play patty cake with Steven and he was laying, you know, on the, you know, just laying in a funny position with his eyes open. He wasn't submerged or anything in water. It was not that. And he wouldn't respond to me to play patty cake. So I quickly called in my parents and long story short, um, he had had a seizure. And at the time I didn't even know what that was, but he was rushed off to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And it was real, really traumatic as they rushed him out the door, completely naked, wrapped in a towel. And um, I believe my grandmother was there at the time. So she stayed back with the you know, the three of us. And it was really a harrowing kind of episode. And mm. just the door shut and they they were gone. And over the next month, we just got very filtered information. And we just knew that Stephen was really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a six year old, you're not getting a whole lot, but you can read the tones of the family. And it was a really scary time because this was Stephen was actually belonged to me. In mm-hmm. my yeah. And this was the first incident. This is yes. So this is a big pivotal kind of maybe one of there's just many, you know, there's these few moments in your life that I think will always be these benchmarks that give you clarity. And about a month later, my mother sat my twin brother, Ben and I down and she said, I have some good news. Steven's coming home. And I was just so excited. I was like, mm. I can't wait to see him. And, is he, and she explained, you know, Stephen wasn't going to be able to speak. And he wasn't he wasn't going to be like the other children. And his development was going to be. I don't really remember the specifics. It mm-hmm. was more of, we, you need to look out for Stephen. And he had had a tracheotomy. So he had this Band-Aid and a hole in his neck. And, you know, all these crazy things as a six-year-old, you're like, are really incomprehensible. Sure. What I got from that conversation was my whole, all I remember is thinking, well, I don't care if he comes home with, you know, a missing neck, like, or missing limbs. Like, can you just bring my, one of my babies back? Mm. Just bring him back. I'll love him forever. And I can remember my mother saying, Stephen most likely won't be able to speak. And I remember thinking, well, he doesn't need to, I'll, I'll always speak for him. Hmm. And I look back on that and how profound that ultimately was. And I really did when he got home, I was very protective and very loving and very obsessed with him and trying to be, you know, careful. And I, I would kind of interpret what he wanted. Like I was the interpreter. I just assumed the role and I kind of never, I actually never, um, abdicated that role. I, and I, <laughs> 
So that kind of, I just really had a natural maternal love for Stephen and Michael as well. Um, my twin brother and I have always. I was just going to ask, <laughs> um, you know, Barbara, when, when you were little, but you know, did you understand that Stephen was different before, before the seizure? What did your parents tell you about his development or how he was? What was your understanding of it? This was the 1970s. And it just, remember, he has a twin brother who's developing and hitting all the milestones and Stephen is not. So it's just really kind of chalked up to, mm-hmm. there was, Stephen didn't have the diagnosis actually of fragile X until the 1990s mm-hmm. when it was actually diagnosed as a chromosome, chromosomal disorder. Mm-hmm. So until that point, they just thought he was late to the game. And even though my mother said she had instincts, they were very much kind of poo-pooed even by the doctors of like, no, he's just, you know, delayed this and that. So we never really acknowledged, Stephen just was a little slower than Michael, but he was loving. And I, I, that's the thing is people always ask, how do you treat somebody with special needs? And it can be a very awkward kind of introduction and you want to do the right thing, but you're just new to the new to the scenario and people, the advice, the best advice you always get is watch how the siblings treat them. And that's how you should Hmm. treat that person. And remember as a sibling, I just, I, I didn't have any expectations placed on Steven, maybe like a parent would or anyone else. I'm a sibling. I'm like, you show up as you are. And I don't have any kind of agenda for you except to, you know, hang out with me. Right. So yeah, there was no conversations prior to that because there wasn't access to it. Right. And I think it's an important point because these days, especially, I mean, right now in 2020, we're recording this, there are so many diagnoses you can get and mm-hmm. there are so many tests you can run your children through to make sure they're hitting milestones. And so oh, it's a very sure. different reality back then. And we're all on high alert. And yes. and that's all I can say about that is we're all on <laughs> high alert. There's, gen- pre, you know, there's genetic testing in utero that you can do, including Fragile X. Um, Yeah. So it's definitely, it's just a different scenario now, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, for better or for worse. I think there are so many amazing resources now. There's so much more acceptance and love and understanding. And now you do vocational training from the get-go and you see them more integrated and not only in schools, but also in society. So we've definitely come a long way, but the seventies, the eighties, nineties, much different. Very different. And your, your description about siblings and how they treat their siblings as a marker for how other people can is, is a really good one that I haven't heard of before. Mm -hmm. And I feel like not all siblings necessarily treat their siblings the way you treated him. It seems like what you said about being maternal was really strong within you. Do you, do you appreciate that? Or do you feel like, of course you would have been that way? I, you know, I, and as you've heard my story before, I just, in retrospect, it was the greatest gift I had ever been given because I just, you know, um, it's a tough question to answer because it's the, it's all I know. So I don't really have like a basis of comparison. I can't say I was the, as nice to my twin brother. as <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, but I have to say overall siblings of special needs, children, adults, I think we just, I don't know. I've never met a sibling that lacked compassion, empathy, love, unconditional love. I have only met kindred spirits in this space of if anybody is to hurt my sibling, you will, you, you can't imagine the rage that you will invoke. Mm -hmm. Um, We're just protectors. We, I don't know. There's a, there's a connection, a connectivity, that I see. And I'm always, I immediately have a connection with the sibling. So the way you would treat a typical sibling, listen, that's just universal. You either love them or you hate them, but you always, you know. Well, that's like your twin, right? I mean, we have that right there. (laughs) I mean, I'm sibling like all other siblings with my um, typical uh, brothers. Um, Fight with them, argue with them, you know, completely judge them. (laughs) (laughs) things but you know with a special needs sibling it's I don't know I I believe I would hope that there's just a universal compassion and I've only met kindred spirits on that on that plane 
Yeah. And so it sounds like you were his protector from very early on. And I would imagine that when he left and it sounds like he was gone for more than a month. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. You must've been pretty afraid. Yeah, it was definitely scary because we weren't really as, um, I was too young to get information. It was just, when is Stephen coming home? When is Stephen coming home? And I think I was almost like Rain Man, like when is Stephen coming home? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with Stephen? And I got very filtered information, but I think it was probably spun to be very positive. Um, You know, I come from a very positive family. So I remember missing him and just praying for him to come home. Um, I remember being scared, but I think I was given so much positivity that he was going to be fine. And the truth was, it wasn't a positive scenario. Steven's heart had stopped beating. He had slipped into a coma. He ran a very high fever, um, had to be put on an ice bed. You know, he had to have, um, you know, a tracheotomy to be fed. It was pretty harrowing, but I did not know that at the time that these are Mm. stories that came out later on. And you're like, well now, you know, as a parent, I'm like, of course you didn't tell me I was six years old. (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I just remember wanting him home. I listen, I, he was, he belonged to me. I don't know. I had this. (laughs) (laughs) Your, your (laughs) parents, I love that. Um, so your parents, did you find them to be as patient with him as you were? I think we all are, we were all patient with him. Um, you know, you do lose your patience because it can be very frustrating his ability to articulate himself, to be able to speak that took forever. It just, even today, he's not that he, you can understand him, but he, he doesn't say that much, but, um, you know, I think we all just, we all did our best. Um, we tried to be humorous about, Stevens, uh, some of his Stevenisms, I don't know what else to call them, mm. but um, he just had a lot of things um, that were kind of, I guess my, my dad would, I'd have to get credit, give him the credit on the humor. My dad would always be, you know, find the humor in it. Um, where my mother was more dedicated to bringing in tutors and services and really, you know, always advocating for, um, you know, the special, you know, special education resources that really just even when we grew up right outside of Princeton, mm-hmm. when we first moved here, nothing was here. And my Stephen was supposed to get um, transported to Trenton, New Jersey, which isn't, you know, and my mother was like, yeah, no, we pay taxes, go ahead and <laughs> go ahead and get it started. And now mm-hmm. in this area, we are really known for, um, you know, great resources and special education and New Jersey about, you know, is actually a really great spot. So mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, you know, just to answer your question, I think we were all kind and compassionate and patient with him, but also, you know, he can invoke some frustration, but man, he, this kid's loved this kid. is. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm really altering moment in the airport? Yeah. So, you know, just um, growing up, I think it was just a complicated time, like I had said. And somewhere in the middle of fifth grade, um, my parents were really struggling financially. Um, We had had a home. They had to sell it. Um, We moved into a one-bedroom apartment, um, one bathroom, one bedroom, all six of us. Um, and a dog. Um, And things just kind of went from bad to worse. And Mm -hmm. as a child, you really don't have the insider track, you just know that money is getting tighter and tighter. Mm -hmm. And eventually, it just completely ran out. And we all had to be separated. Um, And the idea, I think, was just to kind of figure things out. And my parents were struggling. And this is very common with it. When there's a child with special needs, the divorce rate is extremely high, something like 30% of adults, uh, I'm sorry, couples stay together. Oh, wow. That's like 70% actually separate. So my parents did separate their back together. They're amazing. It's a that's a whole this is just a chapter in a bigger story. It's a big toll when there are special medical needs emotional needs for a sibling, big toll on the family, marriage and siblings in many cases too. And it it has a lot of repercussions and it doesn't, it's, it's not a blame to be put on to the child who has those needs. It's just an important thing to know about the landscape. Right. And it is, it's very trying. It's very trying. And I think a lot of hearts are in the right place, but people have their own fears and their mm-hmm. own ideas of how they, it, it is a very hard time. And I think it was even 
magnified in the 70s and 80s because it was almost like you people it wasn't something to be ashamed of but people had that kind of like oh you know like it was it was I think it was magnified then um like oh you know I don't know it just well look at oh that for the Schwartzes you know um sure sure and the money so so you're painting a picture where the the kids are tight knit and love each other. The parents love the kids. And and tell me if I'm wrong about any of this. Money is really tight. The stress is high, mm-hmm. and the parents have decided that they need to move kids around so that each parent doesn't have to take too many. Is that is that what I'm hearing? We all had to separate because my dad had to go live with his brother, and my mother had to live with her cousin in like in New Jersey. So my my father moved out west to California. And he originally um, drove cross country with my brother Stephen, the mm-hmm. one with special needs to keep all the brothers <laughs> organized mm-hmm. because Stephen couldn't fly on a plane. I think there was just a lot of anxiety there. Or I don't remember why Stephen drove. I can't actually remember that part, but I know that Stephen and my dad drove across country. <laughs> um, and I met my dad out in California with my other brother. So the The four kids spent the summer of my seventh grade going into eighth grade with my dad in California, living in La Jolla, um, with my uncle, who was a professor um, at a university there. And we moved into his one bedroom studio apartment. So the five of us. Wow. And and that's a very delicate age too. If if people need the reminder, seventh grade is about 12 and a half, 13. The timing couldn't have been worse. I'm living with all men. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just, you know, I'm going through my own personal changes. My body's changing. It was, oh, and I'm living with my <laughs> uncle who is a bachelor and we're, but we only have the, um, the, the outside, you know, the, the living room where there's a fold out couch and we just, all kind of rotated. And then my dad would go off to work and leave um, me with the, you know, my brothers, all four of us together. We are, you know, it was just like, behave, just you kids behave, don't do anything oh, wow. all day long. And we would sneak into the pool because there was, you know, it was a complex an apartment complex. And unfortunately somebody turned us in and I just remember being like the pool was like our only escape. Like it was like so fun for us and we were making too much noise or we were being kids. I don't know what we were doing. And um, that kind of stuff just sits on my heart so heavy because I don't think people just sit and I want to share that because we sit and we stand in sanctimonious judgment of people yet we only see the tip of the iceberg. Don't Mm. know. What go, what is going on in that world? And unless you see something harmful going on, or it's you know there was no harm. We were kids. We were having fun. We were making too much noise, and somebody got upset and turned us in. Um, and we also we not only got kicked out of the pool, we ended up getting evicted. From that oh apartment. my goodness! Not not your uncle too. Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> Oh no! It was awesome. It just was a crazy time. So I'll fast forward the whole situation because it's like a year of craziness. And so, in some form or fashion, all four of us would get shipped because we got evicted and whatever. So we all kind of got shifted around. And um, like my my twin brother got sent back to New Jersey to live with my mother, and then um, and then uh, my brother Michael got shipped back to New Jersey to live with her at some point. And then Ben, my twin brother came back and it was like this whole shell game of like, okay, somebody has got to take care of the kids. And we got moved around and it was a hot mess. You say it, you say it in this way as someone who has told the story many times. And I understand, (laughs) I totally understand because a lot of us, including myself have very unexpected childhoods. And I, I wonder though, when it was happening to you, what do you think your level of stress or pain or disorientation was because when you tell it now you've got it handled you're 47 you've got this but i'm really <laughs> curious what the young barbara was experiencing to the best of your recollection uh, it, it was very traumatic i uh, you know i'm in 7 I'm, I'm spending 8th grade out in california we have no front, we we have to move into an apartment eventually which my dad got through my grandmother we drive around in a, in a painter's van. We've got this painter's van with no seats in the back. There's only one seat up front. I mean, it, you're, you, we would sit on the hubs of the tire wheel. Like, I guess it's the, mm. the wheel 
entire thing. And it was very, I wanted, you know, I wanted to experiment with makeup and hair and outfits. I was interested in um, fashion and I'm getting like 17 magazine and I'm trying to like be cute and fashionable, but there's (laughs) no money. I'm being raised by my father at this point. Um, I am grossly insecure. I'm a little chunky um, because I'm eating. All we did was eat at, um, oh my God, Bob's Big Boy or or Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. Okay. Roy Rogers. (laughs) Best double cheeseburger with bacon. My problem was... Sorry, I'm just laughing because I have su- I'm such a food memory person, and so I'm completely like I'm really vibing with this right now. Are you? <laughs> the issue, like in retrospect, now that like I've kind of obviously recalibrated and uh, understand food, I was just around dudes all the time, and my dad was one of three boys, so eating was like you didn't have to worry about calories and you didn't worry about, so, but I ate like a man. Like I didn't eat like <laughs> a feminine little girl. I ate like a, a trucker. I was, so <laughs> And because of it, I ended up being a little chubby and I didn't have access. I was always athletic prior to this. And so it was really a traumatic time. I, I'm getting 17 magazine, which is you think, you know, listen, these kids have it much worse than I did back then, but I'm looking and I would read shape magazine and how to get in shape. And I'm just throwing back, you know, Roy, Roy Rogers, double <laughs> bacon cheeseburgers and not understanding why I'm not, you know, yeah. able to wear two piece bathing suits, like all the other, you know, seven. Did, did you have, do you remember what your thoughts were about your mom at this point or what people were telling you about your mom? Because I know having been raised by my father and not spending the majority of my childhood with my mother for different, very different reasons that I, you know, pined, I pined for her. And I'm wondering what your experience was of not living with her. You know, um, yeah, of course, I I missed her. I didn't understand a lot of things, but the problem is, and she did. She came out to visit. Um, there was no. It just was a financial situation. I, my parents were separating. Um, they were really struggling between themselves. Um, I felt. I felt being with my dad was a little easier. My mother and I would butt heads. I didn't understand her. I can't, you know, I have such gratitude for all of it now. And I'm sitting in like such a different place. I almost can't even visit that girl because she's an angry teenager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I don't identify with her anymore, you know? Um, but I was, I know How did I, you get rid of that? How did you involves a trip to um, Miraval out in um, Arizona? I went to go to do this horse riding thing because I thought it was mm-hmm. a horse riding thing at Miraval Ranch was the spa in Arizona. And this is like maybe, I guess, eight years ago, 10 years ago. I don't know. And I go to do this horseback riding thing and it's like booked up, you can't get in it. And then there's this other horseback riding thing. It says it's not about the horse. I don't read details. I am not a detail. All I, all I saw was equine experience. And I'm like, oh, I want, and it was an extra hundred dollars. So I was like, well, this must be the fancy horse. <laughs> so because I'm too lazy to read the fine print, what it was was this thing with this guy, Wyatt, who's this world renowned, like intuitive and it was, it was a very spiritual, uh, exchange and what ended up happening in this, it was a very intense experience. He looked at me during it and he was like, you tell that girl that is standing right by that horse that, uh, like, and names my age at like 11, 12 year old girl that's trying to act like an adult and isn't an adult, but is a young girl that nobody's taking care of. You tell her she's okay. And you're going to take care of her the way that that you are going to, you have taken care of her the way she should have been taken care of and she's okay now. So she can go away. And it was like this, like somebody had taken us like, um, I just was a spiritual kind of like, I don't need that angry teenager anymore to fight her fights. She's fought her battles and she's won. And you no longer need that anger and that angst and that I'm always fighting with my mother and Mm -hmm. that it was gone. And after I went through that, it Mm -hmm. was like, I I was like, I stopped being a bratty teenager, even though I was in my thirties. 
I'm being a brat. And I just, I think I don't have her anymore. You know, I don't, I know I was angry and I know I was lost and I was in, I was era. I, I was so insecure and I still have these raging insecurities. Um, as I think a lot of people do, I find that is very connective kind of experience for all of us women. Um, Mm-hmm. But I'm no law. I I don't know. I, it was the I go to Miraval, ask for that guy Wyatt. <laughs> <laughs> he'll he'll set you up. <laughs> okay, so th- what ends up happening is at the end of eighth grade, I spent the entire my my entire eighth grade at Spring Valley Junior High in Spring Valley, California. Um, and <laughs> my younger twin brothers lived out there with me during the academic year and I helped get them off to school. Michael went to Casa de Oro and Steven actually ended up going on like two different bus rides. I don't know what school he went to. Um, so the three of us did our academic year there. And then that summer, my twin brother, so this is where the shell game is like, then Ben came out as my twin brother. Then Ben went back to New Jersey and then Michael went back to New Jersey and it was just Steven and I for the rest of the summer. And at the end of that summer, I looked at my dad, mm-hmm. this is like right before ninth grade is starting. And I'm like, dad, I, I can't, I don't want to do night. I don't want to go to high school here. These aren't my people. This isn't, I hate it here. And, um, I got my aunt mm-hmm. Sally, God rest her soul, uh, to buy us two Steven and I two plane tickets back to New Jersey. I was going to go live with my mother. I am a Jersey girl. I loved my friends. I wanted to come home. And so we, I get the tickets Mm. and remember Steven always goes with me. So in any shape or form, the kids were always separated and moved around and shipped across the country like a UPS box. I was never separated from Steven. Steven (laughs) and I were like a package deal. So all of a sudden we're driving up to LAX. We lived in San Diego and school has started. Freshman year has started. Everyone's enrolled in school. And I'm literally just, you know, going up and down the, uh, what was the, the, the 110 or whatever that is in California, the 405, something like that. Something's taking me to LAX. And Steven is having a meltdown in the car at epic proportion. Now when a special needs child has a meltdown, these are not your average rational meltdowns. They are really something. And this is really something. So we get to LAX and we think he's going to simmer down. You know, everybody has their, like they have their meltdowns and everyone seems to compose themselves. Well, Steven's not composing himself and it's really traumatic. We're getting through the airport. Um, This was back before security. So we're like trying to bribe him to get like a donut. Like, I don't remember how we're getting him because he's throwing himself on the floor of LAX, Los Angeles. And he's about 12 and a half or something or 12. I'm a rising freshman. So I think I'm 14 if I'm getting these ages correct. And he's three years younger. So he's 11. 11. Mm Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden we get to the gate, they're low, they're, they're boarding the plane. My aunt, she was with us. She's yelling at my dad. I mean, it's such a scene when they do my <laughs> lifetime movie. I'm telling you this. <laughs> my aunt is like, Harry, look what you've done to these kids. And from New York. So she's like, I swear in my mind, the way, you know, your mind plays a story. She's like hitting him over the head with her purse. I put that <laughs> So like traumatized Stevens on the floor. My father's like, and the woman, the the uh, stewardess, flight attendant, um, comes up and she's like, "We we have we're closing the doors. You have to get on the plane." And my dad just looks at me and he's like, "Barbara, Stevens gonna stay here with me, and you have to get on the plane." And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> you see, Stephen comes with me. Because remember, somehow I think Stephen belongs to me. And he's like, um, listen, I can do this. I'm like, how? I'm like, you can't take care of Stephen. You're at work. You know, he was a commodities broker and worked to the New York Stock Exchange, which opened at nine East Coast time, six o'clock West Coast time. I'm like, dad, you can't do this. You can't get him to school. If you're at the office at 6am, I'm like, having this bizarre conversation in retrospect, <laughs> my dad's like, Barbara, get on the plane. I'm going to take care of Steven. And I get on the floor and I'm just like beside myself because I can't imagine being without him and him being here without me. And I get on the floor and I'm like, Steven, you have to come with me now. I cannot leave you. And he all of a sudden composes himself, stands up, grabs my hand and we start walking towards the, towards the plane. And I take my hand and I wave back at my dad. I don't like turn around because I think I'm just going to fall apart Mm. and board the plane. 
And Stephen and I sit down, we take our seats and he falls asleep like a dead man. He's like, I, I think his episode, he was like, I'm in good hands now. Every, and like, he just fell asleep on me. And I became like so emboldened in, and that whole flight home, and it was a red eye, and I stayed up all night, and I decided, I'm going to take care of you. I'll never let you down. I'll never see you like this again. I will always, I, and I just, for that entire flight home, I didn't sleep one wink, but I plotted my life, mm-hmm. and I decided I will always take care of this person, and that is a vow that I've always circled back to in times of you know, when I wanted to quit and when I wanted to give up, I was like, I can't, I can't not do this because I promised Stephen I would always take care of him. And, um, that really ended up being this real, um, real lightning rod grounding force in my life. Um, that has guided me until this very day. It's gotten me out of the fetal position on more than one occasion. Cause I have, I have a purpose. I have a greater purpose. He is counting on me. The thought of him being institutionalized is enough to get me off the bathroom floor any day mm. and get, get down to business and figure things out. And um, yeah, it was on that flight home that um, I really plotted out my life. And in retrospect, I really did. <laughs> I really did plot out my life. That story is beautiful. And it, it's, I find it really moving. I don't know how it affects you when you tell it. Oh, sometimes I can't get through it. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I can't get through it because I'm there and the I can feel that, you know, I was crying on that flight home and he was sleeping. He was just like knocked out, like uh, unconscious. Like he's like, all right, Barb's got me. And I'm like, so like emboldened, like I was like angry and sad and fired up and filled with all this, I don't know, this grit, like this no one's going to hurt Stephen and no one is going to stop me from taking care of Stephen and Stephen will never want for anything and I will never fail him. And it was so rage powerful and real and, and I will never, never, never net like just, Mm -hmm. just that, you know, and I, I drew upon that time and time again. Do you advocate for yourself that way? When, I will advocate for my kids that way time and time again. When I go to a place of service and helping others, I cannot be stopped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you ever watch mm-hmm. the Goldberg? I said there's like Beverly Goldberg mm-hmm. and she's kind of a woman who like can storm the school and get whatever she wants for the kids. And now after my kids saw that show, they're always like, it's like, mom, can you go Beverly? <laughs> Do you find that your mothering of your children is different from your, your, uh, quote mothering of Steven? You know, I'm probably just the same, the same person. Um, you know, uh, I couldn't answer that. I don't know. I think I just have like one kind of, it's the same track. It's the same track. I'm very loving. I am. I love my kids. I tell them all the time. I'm like, I love you guys too much. It's too much. I always tell them like, it's too much. <laughs> like, please somebody like, this is not right. I just <laughs> I love them too much. Um, but I'm flawed like everybody else. Um, Uh I have, you know, uh, you know, I have trigger points and, um, I, my executive function is sometimes leaves much to be desired and I'm forgetful and, um, all these other things, but uh, you know, I, you know, I have a sense of humor and I really, uh, you know, I, I do my best. How do they interact with Steven? My kids are great. And the great part about having Steven is that they just, you know, kids, they, Steven didn't show up with like, he just showed up as Steven and they don't know him any other way. And they never, that's the difference between like parents and siblings and then, you know, nieces and nephews. It's just Uncle Steven. It's how he's made and he's part of the fabric of our lives. And we're, he was, you know, he's, he's just, he's around. And my kids know that, um, you know, to always take care of him. If anything happens to me, you know, you take care of Steven, you take care of the Stevens of the world with, um, Mm -hmm. you know, great blessings comes great responsibility. You know, there's tons of people out there. And I think it's just always this 
constant reminder that there are people counting on you that you have to you have to live for. Like you have to look out for the most vulnerable members of society. Um, and mm-hmm. um, I think my kids are really lucky to have him because I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, listen, anything happens to me, don't you know? The money goes first to take care of Stephen. You know, there's and then mm-hmm. you guys can go you know, I don't know, flip burgers, go do what you need to do. Cause no, Stephen can't do that. So there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of weight to carry with it, but there's a lot of blessings too. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how your lover, Stephen, and need to take care of him has picked you up off the bathroom floor. And I know that you've experienced a couple of these giant things in your life, giant challenges in your life. Can you talk a little bit about your illness and mm-hmm. the other major change in your life where you've had to pull this for pull this out for yes so in 2015 i was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer my kids were uh, the boys were 10 and 12 at the time so we had a fourth grader and a sixth grader and then my daughter was 4 and she was in pre-k and of course i was like her class mom that mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. Um, which i quickly resigned when i got my diagnosis that november did you have and symptoms? I mean, did you know something was wrong? I did. Um, mm-hmm. So I had a lot of symptoms. I was really struggling for a long time with food. And I would go into the doctors and describe my symptoms. And it was like, oh, you probably have IBS or, um, you know, you should take out dairy or you should take out wheat or you should take out gluten and you should eat you know, take probiotics and digestive enzymes and yucca, yucca, yucca. And every time I went to a doctor to complain, it was like, you're fine. And I was like, okay, great. I'm fine. You know, I'm happy. This is who I am. I'm like, you tell me I'm fine. You're the doctor. I checked the box. Goodbye. I'm fine. I'm fine. You're fine. Everyone's fine. Fine, fine, fine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my father had been diagnosed with colon cancer, but he was a stage zero, but he didn't tell me that until we were at a little league game. And I overheard him talking to a gastroenterologist. I was like, I didn't know your tumor was a, was cancerous. He goes, well, they just labeled it a cancer. It was stage zero, but you know, blah, I don't know how these doctors work, but all I know is that because I overheard him say that when I went in to go see an alternative doctor. So when modern science is needed, she, she whipped out the script and was like, here's your colonoscopy script. And so I finally got the script for the colonoscopy at 42. It took me six months to get in an appointment for a gastroenterologist. Wow. And from there, it went from zero to cuckoo birds very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, once I got the uh, colonoscopy, they found the mass. Um, they sent the pathology off and it came back cancerous. Then I had to have surgery. And then that pathology came back and it was in... Um, the lymph nodes. So mm-hmm. I had to have uh, chemo. It was a stage three. Once it moves out of the the realm of the intestinal wall, which it had perforated the intestinal wall and moved into, the, you know, was heading towards the mothership. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a bummer. Um, but the point that was really pivotal was actually when I was knee deep in chemo and I was struggling. Chemo is no joke. Mm-hmm. And that's why anybody who's listening that is in their 40s that is struggling with, you know, they're going to the bathroom or has a distended stomach or any of the telltale signs, please just get go get a colonoscopy. It's an afternoon nap. That's all it is. And you'll lose five pounds. Yay. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> Chemo is so bad. And all, you know, the truth is like um, colon cancer is actually a polyp that has just had its way. And now, you know, maybe I fed it too much cancer food. So mm-hmm. anyway, I'm knee deep in chemo. I can't drive a car because I'm so blinded by the nausea and the chemo fog is so bad. I can't concentrate enough that I feel safe being on the road. And what had happened one day, I went to go pick up a prescription and I'm sitting in my car and I'm like, Ooh, I, I'll put on lip gloss. And then I'm like, Oh my God, Barbara, you're driving a car. Like, can you focus? Mm-hmm. And then I did something else. Like maybe I went to like play words with friends on my phone or something. like something so stupid. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't, I'm driving a car. I'm driving a car, like a, a deadly weapon, if not handled appropriately. And I kind of took myself off the road because I had, I had, was having such a hard time with it. And, you know, probably about four months into my six, my six months of it, I was like, I'm not getting the other side of this. I was like, this is 
my story ends here. It's not cancer that's going to kill me. It's this chemo. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment where I thought, you know what, if this is where my story ends, how will, do I, what do I want my kids to remember about me? Mm -hmm. And I reflected on all the things I was really proud of. And, you know, whether it was putting myself through college or starting a business in my twenties or launching this philanthropy initiative when I was um, a stay-at-home mom where I got a humanitarian award because I had raised, you know, a million dollars to help children um, get surgeries across the world. And when I looked at it, I was like, oh, wow. Like I thought, I was like, wow, every time I wanted to quit or not do any of these things that I was so really proud of and wanted my kids to know about me, I, anytime I wanted to quit, I was always like, well, if I quit, I can't take care of Steven. So mm -hmm. I'm going to have to figure out how to put myself through college. I'm going to have to figure out how to run a business after college, because I can't get paid $30,000 a year, mm -hmm. and then be able to take care of him. So I better figure out and put myself on a path for upward mobility and more earning potential than somebody else is paying, you know, paying me a salary. Mm -hmm. I launched this philanthropy initiative under the same kind of understanding of like, Stephen isn't the only Stephen in the world without a voice. I can give a voice to those underserved because I have a big mouth and I've made all these connections professionally. And I have to do it for the Stevens of the world. Mm -hmm. And it was in that same moment, I just kind of had this clarity. And it was this whole time, I thought it was me taking care of Steven, when it was always the complete opposite. It was always Steven who was taking care of me. And when I came to that moment in my chemo fog and my depression and my despair, I was like, oh my God, I have been gifted the greatest gift anybody can be given. And that's the gift of purpose. I was given the gift of purpose. I had no quit. I could never quit. I could never quit. No matter what I was doing, I was like, I can't, I have to figure this out and find my way out to the other side. And I had just kind of come to this second vow of my life of, or maybe it's my third of the first is at the bathtub and the second is at an airport. And then my, my, my third is it actually at Lululemon as I'm looking for, <laughs> I hope this happened at Lululemon. <laughs> I, if you get me out of this cancer, you get me out of this chemo, you get me out of this, I will do what I'm supposed to do. And that is give a voice to those who cannot speak for themselves. And that was my vow. I'm like, you get me out of the universe. I said to that little, whatever that is. I said, universe, get me out of this. Give me my brain back. Cause I had three brain cells firing at that point, you know, as I'm like just roaming around Princeton, what I did, I walked a lot through my chemo and I would wander into Lululemon because it was on my walking route and I would buy nothing, but that's part of my route and part of my story. And I said, universe, get me out of this, get me my brain cells, get me my brain, get me my, give me my, give me my life back. And I will never, I will never stop doing what I've been gifted to do and to give gratitude for the greatest gift I was ever given, which was purpose. And the only way to acknowledge that is to share that with others in, in my story is to be shared because everybody else has a story. Everyone is gifted with great purpose. It's just that purpose is always disguised. It's just not, doesn't show up under a Christmas tree or at your birthday parties. It's often wrapped up in some of the most difficult things you've gone through. And it's your alignment with humanity. Um, but we all have it. We all have a role to play in, in connection with humanity. And that's mm -hmm. where I'm here today. Mm -hmm. And so you're in remission. So I am called Ned. I am Ned. No evidence of disease. I am at four and a half years. Um, June 6th is my um, oncology appointment. Um, and then December 6th is my final scan for five years. I get cancer free at five years. I hear people saying they're cancer free after like five minutes of finishing chemo. And I'm like, I don't my, I don't know. Come on, I didn't get that hard. <laughs> That's my doctor's like, you're not cancer free until five years. I'm like, oh, like really? Well, I hope I hope you're going to have a, something to mark the occasion because you're getting there. You know, it. I I hope so. Get me get get out of this pandemic. Oh yeah, let's do that first. So so, what are you up to now, Barbara? What in the final minutes we want? I want to talk about what you're doing now. Where people can find you because you are actually 
very findable. You're sort of a personality on air. And let's hear about your philanthropy and everything else that you're working on and doing. Um, well, I've always looked for ways to give back. Um, and, you know, I'd launched a philanthropy initiative with Operation Smile years ago. Um, I'm still very passionate about giving a voice to the underserved. Um, right now, I'm launching a career in media just to almost elevate my profile, get more eyeballs, try new things, put myself out there, you know, be more engaged with the public, be more visible. And I felt like television was the greatest way to do that. So I found an agent, I did some um, media training. So now I do work on the Today Show and Fox and Friends and Good Day New York, whoever, Inside Edition, you want me to, (laughs) you want me to paint pumpkins, I'll paint pumpkins. I am like, (laughs) whatever you need me to do. So I'm in this space right now where I'm just really eager to build an audience, meet people, connect with people um, in whatever capacity that looks like. So, yeah, so I I'm la- I launched a, like, a, a lifestyle initiative called The Curator of the Good Life, which is living life with purpose, style, and adventure. So mm-hmm. I kind of curate all the good stuff and I put it out on Instagram and Facebook and anytime I get on uh, a spot on television – I try to feature all these cool things. My favorite thing to do is um, really promote products that one of my favorite things I should say, because there's so many fun things that I get to do. But one of my favorite things to do is promote products that have a social element to it, like a give back. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that I've been able to do more and more recently. And that really resonates with me. Um, I'm also launching, I've also launched a podcast called Bearing It All, which is all about the grit behind the glamour. We're all so bought into people's highlight reels on social media and the pictures. And I'm all about, okay, I want to talk about the grit to get there. And I want people's backstory. So that's called Bearing It All. And obviously, the word bear has so many connotations to it. Uh, The things that we bear about being, you know, Mm -hmm. also being authentic and and real and also about being a mother bear. Like you talk about me mothering my kids and Steven, I'm like, and you know, me that going all Goldberg on, you know, the world where I can advocate. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's it. And I think just finding me, you can just Google me. Yeah. I'll also include all those links in the show notes on all the platforms where people can listen and on the, and then everything changed podcast website. I'm very, very happy you were able to come be my guest, especially during this uncertain time. It's it's really important to hear stories like yours that inspire and empower. So thank you. Well, thank you, Ronit. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.